This is TechSnap, episode 365. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on April 24th, 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, DigitalOcean, Tink, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-host, the admin, the presenter, and the engineer. It's Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris. Wes, we have a batch of warm-up stories this week. Yes, I said a batch. And they all have a, a hardware theme to them in one form or another. Yeah, that's right. First up, let's go down to the physical layer. At its core, this is a story of a sysadmin who unplugged the wrong server, ran away, and hoped no one noticed. This week, we meet Hayden, who confessed to the register that back in 1992, I was sort of a snot-nosed kid just a few years out of college that knew everything. Well, everything except how to follow a power cord back to its socket. <laughs> okay. Oh. Hayden discovered his lack of skills in this regard when working for a telecom research business that did mostly research, but also wrote some production software for the regional telcos in the U.S. The research focus meant that the company's server room was, let's just say, uh, in shambles. I'm sure you've seen that, Chris. Yes. You know the type. None of this is, is really production. You just put servers wherever they need to go. Yes, I was in a server room that was a mix of production and test from two different companies. They merged and they put it all in one room. It was a disaster. A mess. In this case, there were a ton of Spark servers in one room, and whenever a research group would get a new server... They just wheeled it right in, put it wherever there was space, pulled up a floor tile, and found the first free power socket and Ethernet plug that yep. they could, yep. plugged it in, and that's it. And of course, all of the Ethernet jacks are just active. Just have them all active. Why not? We don't need to worry about that. It was in this environment that Hayden found himself with something of a problem. He had a hard drive. It was having some issues. And he found himself constantly having to run back and forth between, you know, up, up and down two flights of stairs to the server room. None of this made any sense. It was way too much work. So he had a brilliant idea. He was just going to unplug his server, bring it back to the office, and then he could work on it in peace, get it fixed up, yeah. put it back in the room. It's always easier if you can just work from your desk. I mean, sometimes I work remote on a server or a system in the same building just because, you know, it might be downstairs. It might be out in the quote-unquote garage server room. I don't feel like standing out there. I remote in. And I'm just more productive back at the desk. Yeah, exactly. You have all your tools. It's where your chair is. It's perfect. Comskies. So he, he walks down the stairs, heads back to the server room, pulls up the floor tiles, and just starts feeling around, trying to find where this dang power cord is connected. And the cables were just in piles, no zip ties, no cable tracks, just four inches of open space between the floor tiles and the concrete floor. Sounds Most of right. that stuffed full of cables. He writes, I did my best to trace the power cable from my test server to its outlet, but after a few frustrating minutes... I decided the easiest approach was just going to be tug on the cable right at the point that I knew it was my cable and just hope that it came out okay. Like After five how, or like six this. tugs. <laughs> sure, it must be mine. Yeah, right. I mean, you just... I like how honest he is. He's, he's honest about it. I appreciate that too. This is a... I mean, I felt around. It seemed like it was mine. It, it felt right. After five or six tugs, the plug moved. It was like, bingo. And promptly, the plug came out. Now, at this point, Hayden, of course, expected to see his server power down. Sure. 
but its lights, they just kept on blinking. There was also something a little unexpected. He noticed that one of the larger servers' fans, it seemed to be winding down. Oh, no. And when he looked at the rest of the chassis, all its lights were off. So, he did what any 23-year-old sysadmin would do. Put the plug back in, dropped the floor tile, and walked as quickly as he could back to his office. Oh, no. And didn't say anything? He said nothing. And he got away with it, too. Hayden said he returned to the server room about 40 minutes later to join a small group trying to figure out why their server lost power. Just walking in with everybody. Hey, guys, what's going what's on happened? here? What's happened? Yeah. And discussing how long it would take for all of its X25 connections to recycle. As said server had about 20 or so connections, it was four hours before it resumed duty. Oh, that's a big outage from the wrong power cord. Also, side note, um, why don't they have UPSs? Moving on. (laughs) Good question. And of course, this happened to be one of the few actual production servers in the room, meaning a bunch of telcos weren't able to place circuit orders for a while. Oh, that's kind of a big deal. That's no good. Now... This did not stop Hayden. Uh, a couple days later, he went back to try to find, you know, find his actual server's power cable so he could get a server back. After all the fuss had settled. Right, yeah. No one's around, maybe after hours. This time, he pulled more floor tiles up so he could trace the power cord connections better. Close to the power plug, the two power cords literally wrapped themselves around each other so tight that, yep, when you pulled the correct power cord, both came unplugged. This is a great example of why cable management is a necessary thing in production. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can't you can't build a complicated system if you don't have sane foundations, yeah. and this is a key part of it. And you know, what's funny is just even labels, even if they could have done nothing else, labeling the power cords. I, I have a story, two stories actually. One is about labeling. We were troubleshooting network transfer speeds for days and days and days and days on this file server. And we were convinced it was a failing disk, just convinced. Um, and uh, we'd, so we, but you know, maybe it's something on the switch. Maybe it's something on the right, switch. Right, right. So we track that back to the switch. Nope, everything looks good. It's full duplex, gigabit, everything's fine. So a few more days go by. We're still trying to figure it out. And then it crosses my mind. Like, well, what if we just check the ports around the switch? Maybe we mislabeled something. And so we actually traced the wire back. Sure enough, it was plugged into a different port we had mislabeled, and that port was set to have duplex. I think that's actually a surprisingly common problem. Even when you have good intentions and you're attempting to label it, there's just, there's so many cables, there's so many connections, you really have to fight to maintain order. Although, unfortunately, it meant that our end users were experiencing horrible transfer speeds for about a solid week just because we'd mislabeled something. Yikes. And they were upset about that. Chris, you seem to have a particular glint in your eye as we were discussing this story. I was snickering a bit. Do you have any personal experience in this domain? I uh, never unplugged anything and took it down. Okay, okay. But uh, we had an IIS server that was crashing. And we were trying to figure out what it was. And eventually we figured out it was an application that was just eating up a whole bunch of RAM that was unrelated to the IIS server at all, but ran on the same box. But in the meantime, trying to figure that out, I created a series of scripts that would check in on the box. And the issue was is they were aggravating this memory consumption issue. (laughs) And so when I started monitoring the box, it started accelerating the crash rate. You just made it worse. And so at first we thought, oh man, this this machine's getting worse. Might be another hardware problem, right? Uh, But it turned out I was just 
I was just consuming more RAM with my different checks because you know, I was logging in, executing an application, collecting metrics, then copying it over the network over an SMB You were share. doing stuff. Yeah, and it was using up resources and so started crashing several times a day. And it took me not too long to figure it out at that point. But once I uncovered what was going on, I never volunteered the information that my script made the crash Just a worse. little control C yeah. out of that terminal. Yeah, and just, I just sort of uh, never... Don't bring it up. Didn't Looks like to... it's doing better this week, guys. Yeah, because it wasn't the core issue, but I did exasperate the problem. And so I never really felt necessary to say anything. But I'd be curious if the audience has any stories like that. Essentially, a war story or a job gone wrong. Let us know. TechSnap.Systems slash contact. Share it with us and we might read it on a future episode. Or if nothing else, we'll read it and have a good laugh. Exactly. Sticking with that hardware theme for the warm-up, that $5 VGA to USB adapter that you bought years ago, bust that out of the closet. Turns out it might be a lot of fun to play with that thing. Yeah, that's right. At Osmo DevCon just recently, (laughs) Steve McGrath released... Osmo FL2K, a tool which allows transmit-only software-defined radio through those cheap USB 3.0 to VGA adapters, in particular based on the Fresco Logic FL2000 chipset. Okay, so these specific chipsets can be screwed around with, and all of a sudden they become a transmitter? Yeah, exactly. Uh, You can find these through a bunch of overseas suppliers for really as low as like $5.00. And unmodified, you can then use them to transmit low-power FM, GSM, GPS, really a whole different, a whole array of different signals. GPS even. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. In a demonstration of the project, one of these USB VGA adapters is used to broadcast a GSM cellular network, and then an adjacent cell phone picks it right up, right? So it's just just right there. Yeah, it's got to be pretty close. But you could see how, like, at a conference, you could use this to maybe grab people's phones and create your own stingray of sorts. Oh, sure. Another example shows that it can be used to broadcast FM radio. So, I mean, that's that's useful right there by itself. Pirate radio! They've set up a GitHub repository, and it has a ton of additional examples, so, like, make sure to go check that out. This is really pretty neat. Uh, the signals transmitted from the FL2000 chip are obviously pretty weak, as you said, but the next step will be hardware modifications necessary to boost transmission to more useful levels. So I'm sure there's going to be a whole bunch of clever hackers piling on here, making additional plans to help you help you put more power through those chips. Yeah, and if this is hiding in a VGA to USB adapter, you'll wonder where this other Fresco Logic FL2000 chip may be lurking. Because we may have lots of devices out there that could do this. And you think about the implications of being able to spoof a cellular network or a GPS signal, or perhaps both. Maybe you spend $10 and you get two adapters and you spoof both at the same time. That has some big ramifications, especially if they can get that signal up. I'm not saying this guy's falling here, but this seems like a pretty big development because it just brought the barrier to entry for that particular kind of spoofing way down. I think I've got one of these in my laptop bag. You mentioned Osmo DevCon at the beginning of this story. So Osmo DevCon is a conference, which is a public one. It's open to anybody who is an operator of an OsmoCom-based cellular network. And so Osmo DevCom was bringing together hardware hackers and software hackers that are trying to build networks around open source software and tools. And that's where they discovered that they could take these VGA adapters and have some fun. This is their wheelhouse, these radio transmissions and things like that. Yeah, this is a fascinating development. And there's already been a plethora of cheap receive-only adapters. So really, they've been missing the transmit side for a while. I imagine there's a lot of, you know, test systems, test setups that are going to benefit a great deal from this. (laughs) 
ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there to support the show, and that's a landing page. It'll also link you to a white paper that explains to management why you might want to switch over to IX Systems. I understand. You understand why you would want IX Systems, but help them understand. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They have been real leaders in open source storage solutions for a long time. And we frequently talk about it because storage is always on our mind here at the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. But coming up in the show, we're going to be talking about virtualization. And that's an area that IX Systems are real experts. They make VMs safe. Combined with true NAS, they deliver unrivaled data integrity protection. It's based on FreeNAS, the world's number one open source software-defined storage OS. It keeps your VMs and your data safe by using OpenZFS. It improves reliability through built-in self-healing bit rot mitigation, unlimited instant snapshots, replication, and, of course, encryption, which everyone knows you want your VMs encrypted these days. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. You know what's great about IX is they've, they just really covered the whole industry. Everyone who has a need for large-scale computing or reliable storage from the free NAS Mini up to their massive rack systems. Michael Dexter, IX Systems' longtime employee and friend of the show, went to NAB 2018, which is the big broadcast convention show. A big group of people that have lots of storage needs. And he said the IX Systems logo on his shirt was all he needed to get people's attention. He said he saw booths where vendors were proudly showing net data in real-time performance telemetry on free NAS to a presenter who was including their IX Systems hardware in their demos. Word about IX Systems storage and transparent approach to business has been getting around to all the different industries. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and check out their clients page, and it'll blow your mind the different industries that IX Systems can work with. They give you a white glove approach from beginning to end. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Maybe you recall from a few weeks ago a story floating around about the unfixable Nintendo Switch exploit. Well, we have some new developments on that story this week, including some background on how the exploit has come to the public light and the technical details of what the exploit actually is. Yeah, that's right. The team over at Fail Overflow have written up a great blog post detailing what they're calling Shuffle 2, which is their Tegra X1 and Nintendo Switch exploit. Now, this story starts with a little bit of an ethical dilemma. It starts off, they're doing your, your, your hardware hacking, you're having fun, you're not even playing video games on your Switch because that's the kind of person that you are, right? You're, you're more interested in trying to get your code to run on it. You've found a vulnerability. Do you reveal it? You know it's going to be used for piracy, but it, it, it could also be used for homebrew, for taking full advantage of the hardware that these consumers own. There's some stickiness to this too because depending on what the flaw is and where it is, there may be other companies that could be impacted by this as well because the Nintendo is using Tegra chips. It's using standard components that are in mobile devices. Yeah, exactly. So Fail Overflow decided to follow the responsible disclosure principles. They started a process, a 90-day release process with Google in particular. As, as you mentioned, Tegras are used a lot in, in Android devices, and there's a lot of security implications there. Unfortunately, it appears that this particular bug is actually pretty simple to find, so simple that multiple other people have already found it. Um, Fail Fail Overflow claims to have found it first, and they've done a, a much better write-up than a lot of competing competing researchers, so I think they, they get some credence there. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes too, techsnap.systems slash 365. 
But since things were already published before April 25th, which was the day that they were actually due to be disclosed, we get this blog post a couple days early. All right, so you caught my attention. You said it's a fairly simple hack. So what is this all about anyways? Really, it's all about the Tegra X1, also known as the Tegra 210, and it's the system on a chip inside the Nintendo Switch. It contains an exploitable bug that allows taking control over early execution, bypassing all signature checks. The bug is in the RCM mode, which is a USB-based recovery mode that's really intended for initial flashing of the device or recovery of bricked devices, you know, after a, a bad firmware update, things like that. Normally, RCM mode only allows signed images to be loaded, but thanks to the bug, arbitrary code execution is possible. Ah, uh, gotta love arbitrary code execution. Exactly. This means that in order to gain code execution on the Switch, you need to do two completely independent things. First, you actually have to get into RCM mode. Then, you need to execute this USB-based exploit. Mm, USB-based. Yeah, and now it gets more complicated because each of these can be accomplished in several different ways. It's also important to note here that this is what iPhone users might call a tethered jailbreak in that it needs to be performed on every boot. So it's not just one and done. It runs Linux forever. If you're going to do it, follow this path. Every time you boot it, you need to use the exploit to get it to run your custom code. The upside is that since this bug is in the boot ROM, it can't be patched without a hardware revision, meaning all Switch units in existence today are vulnerable forever. There's nothing they can do. There's no firmware updates. There's no, there's no updates at all. Unless you get a new switch later, your switch is vulnerable to this exploit. Also, since the vulnerability occurs very early in the boot process, it allows extraction of all device data and secrets, including the boot ROM itself and all cryptographic keys contained on the device. <laughs> it can also be used to unbrick any Tegra device as long as there's not you know, actual hardware damage or you've blown a few, something irreversible. Plus... It just keeps getting better here. Since it's a boot time bug and it doesn't require touching any of the onboard flash storage, its use is completely undetectable to existing software. So it's not like they can, you know, somehow invalidate your device with the, when the switch code is running to text that you've installed Linux or something like that because they run separately and they don't really need to know about each other. To go a little deeper, first you need to get into RCM mode. Now you can get into RCM mode in multiple different ways. If you already have kernel mode execution on the system, you can just get it to jump into RCM mode. Okay, easy. Maybe you already used some other exploit like WebKit, but you probably don't have that. Okay, option two. You can remove the storage. Then the tag will just automatically enter RCM mode. Oh. But then you've got to open your switch up, remove the storage. That's probably more of a hassle as well. So you're left with option three. Hold the volume up key, home, and power buttons all on the switch at the same time. Okay. There's a little caveat there. It sounds easy, um, but the Joy-Con home button won't work here. You may also be wondering about the secret home button on the Nintendo Switch itself. Ooh, a secret home button. Turns out that uh, what the Tegra calls the home button is actually connected to pin 10 on the right-hand side Joy-Con connector. Now, if you use a simple piece of wire to bridge it to, to a rail on the side or uh, connect pins 10 and 7 together... That will work. That will that will connect the button. That will count as you pressing the so-called uh, really? home button. So yeah. I could stick a piece of wire on there, and the Tegra thinks I'm holding down the home button. Yes, exactly. Huh. Now, if you don't happen to want to fashion one of those, you can also print a handy 3D-printed jig to do this for yourself. They provided a link to get you going. An open-source 3D print spec. Then you, it's like a little jig. 
You just click it in, and uh, then it's always doing it for you. They have two little wires you put in there, and they have step-by-step. This is like... <laughs> This is next level. Turns out if you're a hardware hacker, 3D printers are a handy tool. Yeah. This is really now in the in 2018 when there's a when there is a flaw, there is now a corresponding open source 3D printing spec that you can follow. That's really something. Okay, so maybe you've printed your jig, you've gotten yourself into RCM mode. What do you do next? Well, we mentioned this was, you know, a, a tethered jailbreak, so to speak. Yeah, you said it was a USB-based exploit, I believe were your words. Yes, and and the reason is, right, when you're in RCM mode, it's looking to receive an image, in this case over USB. Uh-huh. And normally, it's going to try to verify that it's signed with Nintendo's signature. In this case, the exploit does some clever things and basically is able to skip that verification and get their own custom image to run. So, naturally, it requires a system that is a USB host. It also takes advantage of using very long control transfers, and that's kind of part of the inner workings of the exploit. And unfortunately, some operating systems aren't really happy with that. Luckily for us, you can use a vanilla Linux on a PC if it has a USB 3 port, or they provided a patch if you just have a USB 2 port, so you can patch your own kernel and run it on that system as well. It really, it, what a great platform. That's, that's fantastic. In theory, you could also get this uh, to be used on certain Android phones if they have an, a USB 3 controller on them. Although porting that is left as an exercise to the listener and the reader. Bonus points if someone is able to do it from another Tegra device. Yeah. Like maybe a Switch. Yeah, really. People are joking online that now we really have the best Linux tablet. <laughs> That's maybe not too far off. And there is a true simplicity to this hack, which is the real beauty of it. You got to figure Nintendo might try to rev the hardware to fix this, but there could be other Tegra devices out there that have similar flaws. I bet there are. Let's do a brief update on the Atlanta ransomware story that we first talked about in episode 361 on March 9th, 2018. And it's, it's worse than I think we initially speculated, Wes. The ransom demand was only about $51,000, but according to Atlanta's Department of Procurement, it really looks like they spent a ton more trying to rectify the situation. In particular, $650,000 were paid to SecureWorks, $600,000 to Ernst & Young, and another $50,000 to Edelman for crisis communication services. Oh, no. Overall, it seems like so far they've spent almost $2.7 million on this whole affair. Yeah, and on top of that, according to at least some of the implications from the different officials, it sounds like data has been unrecoverable. So not only have they spent the money, but they've also lost the data and some of the systems are still down. It really hasn't been clear if they tried to pay the ransom, but just based on what you've said, it really seems like if they did try to pay, it didn't work. And, and I guess now uh, the attackers actually took down the communication portal, so they have no further opportunities to pay. Yeah, and this is from the city's chief information security officer. Uh, they told uh, Security Week, unless paying the ransom provided details of how they were breached, what would we have really gotten? Firstly, they don't know if they would have actually gotten the decryption keys. And secondly, they didn't know if they would get hit again. And thirdly, it seems like it would only encourage more of the same kind of actions in the future. However, it's pretty clear that Atlanta should have at least done more to back up their data and protect their systems. I mean, the real lesson here is this is a no backup tax. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad that they have, uh, you know, a someone to head up 
information security, but it seems like they need to be spending more resources here. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and their services, as of this episode, are still offline. Uh, not all of them, but many of them. Yeah, and that's things like courthouse documents, payment processing for city fines. These are, you know, real problems for everyday citizens. And it appears to have been the SamSam ransomware, which is a well-known ransomware attack. It's not super sophisticated. It doesn't require a state-sponsored, a department of elite hackers to breach your system and deploy ransomware. It just requires one of your users with maybe too many permissions on your network to download a solitaire game and encrypt all your files. Fun. Next, we've got a brief update on Google's long-term plan of distrusting semantic SSL certificates. Now, they just released Chrome 66, and it will start showing SSL certificate errors for all semantic certs issued before June 1st, 2016. This is basically stage two of Google's long-term plan. They are, after Semantic misissued like 30,000 SSL certificates, you can go back in the TechSnap archive and listen to that if you missed that huge story last year. Google basically decided, Semantic, you're out. We will remove you eventually from our trust store. Obviously, that has, you know, complications. It's a long-term process. You're going to break a lot of sites that, you know, you just you just bought a certificate. You didn't really know where the root of trust was or care that much if you're just a casual SSL user. And in the case of our audience, they're going to have end users that have been going to websites for years that all of a sudden are just going to start breaking on them or at least giving them scary messages. Especially with all the changes trying to prefer, you know, HTTPS all the time, being upgraded mostly. So they're doing it, I think they're doing it pretty well. They're taking a long time. This is stage two. There'll be more to come. Their plan is in Chrome 70, which will be released sometime in October, to completely distrust all semantic certs. That's when the other foot finally drops. 66 in itself is really a focus on security. And and that's really a positive thing. But when you really lock down, there's often new inconveniences that are introduced. Yeah, really. I mean, there's often a spectrum of convenience and security, and you kind of have to find the place that makes sense for, you know, what threats you're trying to protect from. Now, one of the other features that our audience might have to deal with when it comes to their end users is Chrome's already known for eating a lot of RAM, and that's going to become even more pronounced with a new feature they're rolling out called Strict Site Isolation. Yeah, they actually, they enabled this, or they, they they included it back in version 63. It was turned off by default, so, you know, ambitious users could enable it if they wanted to. But they say it will be turned on for a small percentage of users to prepare for a broader upcoming launch. So you may or may not see it. If you do, uh, one of the features of strict site isolation is running each website in its own process. You may also see 10 to 20% increased memory usage, so watch out. do.co slash snap. DigitalOcean is infrastructure on demand that you can spin up in 55 seconds. do.co slash snap will give you a $100 credit when you sign up with a new account. DigitalOcean gets out of your way so you can get to work. You can build and deploy systems in seconds. It has predictable pricing, it's secure, it's reliable, and it's easy to scale up when you need more resources. And why not play around with their new plans, like their flexible droplet? For $15 a month, you can mix and match the resources you need for your application. do.co snap. 
They have a great interface, a dashboard for days, if you will, and an API that's clear, easy to understand, and well-documented. They extend that same philosophy to their documentation. They have some of the best on the web. And they just posted a few days ago some tutorials on how to set up SSH keys on your favorite flavor of Linux, from CentOS to Ubuntu. It walks you through a four-step process. And by the end, you're going to be able to wrap your heads around SSH keys, get them implemented, and deployed on your systems. And that's just part of the great documentation they offer at DigitalOcean. You can deploy an entire stack from the base OS to the application or a core system that you build on top of. They have FreeBSD, CentOS, Ubuntu, Debian, and many more. do.co slash snap. Thanks for visiting techsnap.systems slash contact to send us your questions. Like Ben did. Ben wrote it and he said, when I started at my current company, there was no monitoring at all. Over the last year, I was able to find time here and there to monitor things of particular interest, like our our NAS disk usage, server room temperature, things that I could kind of figure out I'd had issues with in the past. But now I want to take it further, and I would like to know where you suggest I start. We have a lot of smartphones, tablets, and laptops connecting to some NASes and various streaming servers. I think we want to monitor network quality primarily, like congestion, drop packets, etc., how much traffic, and possibly store packets for, for, for maybe a short time to do post-analysis. My understanding at the moment is that I need to access the switches and the gateways to get this kind of information which I'm unlikely to get access to based on my early talks with the IT department. But are there any other ways that won't impede traffic, i.e. I don't have to go through a proxy or something like that, that would allow me to pull metrics? Many thanks for the awesome show, Ben. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that Ben's had such a good experience at least trying to get started with monitoring. Fluentd is a handy tool. Grafana is great for visualizing things, so that's awesome. In this case, yeah, that's a little tricky You might see the switches, uh, some of the network gear may respond to SNMP v1 without needing any sort of authentication. Sure. Or you may be able to, you know, talk IT into letting you get the community string just so you can do some polling of their SNMP devices. You know, there's nothing really too sensitive there. I, I would think that's a reasonable request. That would give you a ton of data. Otherwise... You, know, you might need to you might really need to find some actual examples that you can take to them to show you know show examples of like these are the problems we're having. this is why we need that data, but you really only have your actual connections to work with. So I would look at tools like iperf to measure bandwidth throughput from devices, maybe tools like fping or other ICMP measures. Things that'll track dropped packets where you can just sort of try to measure just connections. You know, obviously you can't do the whole network, but if you can set up enough probes between different systems, try to show that yes, we are seeing a lot of dropped packets. If you have, if you can find some specific examples of like we are seeing, you know, X effect, that will be useful. If you need just Make more your case, yeah, exactly. If you need just more general statistics about like how host networking is performing on servers, I've really been loving net data recently. You get oh, a whole yeah. bunch of built-in graphs. It has alerting built in. It has it can send stuff to a, a whole bunch of different backends. So that might be useful if you're just trying to monitor. Like, oh yeah, look, I have to had to retransmit a whole bunch of packets. Yeah, net data is something I'd like to hear more about because both Wes and I are really tempted to do a segment in the show. So if you're a net data user. Send us in your use case, your feedback, your thoughts. Again, techsnap.systems slash contact. A lot of people like that monitoring coverage we did last week. Defunct wrote in about a few different tools that he uses on his network. NTOP is an old go-to of mine that just is so beautiful. If you can get like a mirrored port on a switch, you can get some incredible insights with NTOP. But I'm not so familiar with some of the other tools on here. 
I'm familiar with Observium. Um, actually, on the TechSnap program, we talked a bit back in the days of Dan about Libre NMS. Uh, Observium and Libre NMS, actually, they're forks, so they, they come from a common code base. Oh, okay. So it's a it's an NMS-type software network management system. Uh, you know, it can provide you with an alert dashboard. It can go go do some of that SNMP polling. It's a little more of a monolithic system versus something maybe like NetData or CollectD, uh, which just exists on that node. But it's it's super handy, has a ton of built-in features, definitely worth exploring. Hmm. He says after a DDoS attack, they decided we wanted an always-up dashboard with an alarm to notify us when we were being hit. So he grabbed all of their RRDs and threw them into Graphite and Graphena to make something pretty nice. And then he slugged that onto a Raspberry Pi, taped that to a back of a 40-inch display, and they have a nice big display that after certain triggers shows a heads-up real-time dashboard-style alert system. That's fantastic. Sounds like they also have an audible alarm. Yeah, I'd like to know more about that one. (laughs) Hey, you know, when you have an outage, it's good to know. Red alert. Brian writes to us about Zabbix. Hey guys, I just finished episode 364 and wanted to throw out a plug for the Zabbix monitoring system. I've been using Zabbix for about five or six years now and absolutely love it. I first used it at a previous job and after singing its praises to my current boss... We converted almost all of our Nagio servers over to Zabbix. We find that Zabbix is a great mix of monitoring and reporting. It's got notification features, rich graphs, really everything you could want. It also has a Windows agent, so we can monitor every server in the company with one tool. We push out Windows agents with cgroup policies and Linux agents with Puppet. On top of all of that, it has a slick web UI to manage it all. No more CGI files. You Nagios users out there, you'll get that. I had that same exact feedback from Noah. When he got into town, he had listened to that episode while he was traveling in and said, you know, I don't really ever talk about this on air, but we use the heck out of Zabbix at AltaSpeed, and we have moved from Nagios to Zabbix. Same with uh, Brian here. So that's interesting feedback. We didn't really go into Zabbix much because we wanted to start with Nagios, but we got so much positive feedback on that focused deep dive into monitoring that I think we'll explore future tools and other future large concepts like that and do a focused episode. We might do some news and a focused episode, or we're going to play around a little bit with it. So you'll see us experimenting to a degree with some of that in the future. If there's any favorite tools of yours that we've missed or that are this awesome feedback is missed, yeah. let us know. Yeah, I mean, really, while we're experimenting with this, we'll be taking in your feedback and your thoughts. So that contact page is always the place to go. Or Twitter, if that's your preferred medium, to let us know your thoughts as we're doing these things. And we'll be happy to incorporate that feedback. TechSnap.ting.com. Go to that landing page to learn more about Ting. It's smarter than unlimited. You use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill for mobile service is $23 per month. It's pay a fair price for what you use. Minutes, messages, and megabytes, whatever you use, that's what you pay. Nationwide coverage, CDMA, and GSM network, no contracts, no service agreements, no tricks. You can try Ting risk-free. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit, or they'll take $25 off a Ting device if you want to buy one from them directly. But because they support CDMA, and GSM, you've likely got a compatible device. You can kick the Ting tires and see what you think. When the Linux Fest Northwest shenanigans kick off, we load up on Ting devices. Noah shows up in town with SIM cards, and we activate old phones and hand them out to the crew, and we run it for a month. Six bucks. And then whatever they use, and we load everybody up with Telegram. They've already got it. So there's no texting. There's no phone calls. And you've got Wi-Fi at the convention, and you've got Wi-Fi at the studio. 
It's amazing how flexible Ting is and how, as a tool, we can use it for a small business to keep our team in sync. TechSnap.Ting.com. You go there to learn more and try it out. If the average bill is just $23 per month, then a $25 service credit will pay for more than your first month. They've got great customer service, a dashboard to manage all aspects of your mobile service, and tons of brand new shiny devices to choose from. TechSnap.Ting.com. Well, that'll bring us to the end of today's program. Now, we do have a couple final thoughts we want to share with you guys. A heads up to administrators out there on VMware ESXi or deploying Workstation or Fusion. There is several vulnerabilities that allow software to escape the VM under certain conditions. Mostly, it's a Windows 10 guest and certain USB functions. But there's several different things going on here. And VMware actually ended up awarding $205,000 for some of the exploits that have been found. So it was a big, big to-do at the Pwn to Own conference. And so if you are an ESXi user or a workstation or VMware Fusion user, it's time to update. You probably already know that because this is actually the fifth time that VMware has pushed out patches for its customers this yeah. month. So. Yeah. Oh, you know, credit to them. They're really cranking this stuff out. And they were actually present at the Pwn to Own conference monitoring this, taking notes as it was all going down so they could get this stuff cranked out. So it is kind of a pain in the butt, but at least they're responding. Yeah, and things are improved. And then also something you discovered this week, a little interesting. Mr. West, what do we find? Yeah, this is Belina, an open source project by Resin.io. If you're not familiar, Resin does IoT, Linux-based IoT containers, so containers for IoT. Belina is a Mobi-based container engine for IoT. Now, really, I thought this was interesting because when a couple of months ago, Docker sort of reformulated their project structure, they made they announced Mobi. Right. Everyone was sort of confused. What is Moby? What's the deal? What is what's Docker? Has anything really changed? And I thought this was just like a concrete example of why what Moby was and how it might actually be useful. So this is based on Docker's Moby project, right? Yeah. Okay. So oh, Docker see. describes Moby as an open framework to assemble specialized container systems. And then you can take that framework and use it to build an actual implemented container system. One example being Docker. Now, Resin has used that to build their own container implementation, this time targeting IoT. Now, you might wonder, like, why would you do that? Why don't you just use Docker's normal engine? Well, really, it's just there's a little, there's lots of little design decisions, right? So Docker was designed for data centers with large, well-networked servers, sure. very different than, you know, a distributed, low-power IoT-embedded IoT space. Yeah. yeah. So there's all kinds of features thrown in for, you know, more atomic updates, more reliability, smaller footprint, better deltas on their container images, lots of neat stuff. Uh, and it goes to show that, hey, yeah, you can do something a little differently, but still leverage a lot of that upstream technology. So there was actually something that came from that whole Moby thing. Yeah, yeah that's that does, right. It does help put it in perspective. Good find, Wes. Thanks. And we'll have a link to all that and more in the show notes, techsnap.system slash 365 for everything we talked about today. You can follow me on the Twitters. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Wes Payne. The whole dang network is at Jupiter Signal and our site with all our feeds and everything. You guessed it, techsnap.systems. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you right back here next week. Next week.